Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Like I said, the title that I've given to this sermon is Discerning the Body of Christ, Communion. I want, before I start, I want you to get a picture of what happened that last night that Jesus spent on the earth. It was Passover. Most of us forget that, and, and in Christendom, when Gentiles entered into the church, they wanted to remove themselves so far from anything that was associated with Judaism that it led them to really disregard some very common sense things. And one of them was is that the Passover was something that the Jews, uh, we have been celebrating Passover for now 3,000 years. And believe it or not, we've been doing it the same way for 3,000 years, every year. Now, everybody has their own little take on it. We, uh, it's kind of like chili. <laughs> everybody has their own recipe. But for the most part, it's always been done the same way in the same style. We all use Haggadahs, and we go through the story of the Jews being you know, uh, released from captivity and, and going into the Promised Land. It's a great time, but it's a time of celebration. So at the last Passover, it was, they were celebrating. They were having a good time. And I want you to keep that in mind because it's going to mean something here later. They were having a good time. They were Jews, and uh, at Passover, the wine flows. I don't know whether you knew that or not, but it does. They serve four glasses, and trust me, they drink them all. Okay? <laughs> so having said that, you've already got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. Today, like I said, we're, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the end of this sermon, or what is commonly known as communion. It's one of two rituals that, for the most part, in Christendom is uh, celebrated. It's, of course, baptism being the other one. And it's something that most churches within Christendom have in common. We all celebrate these, these two rituals. Throughout church history, it has been the cause, though, of not only unity but also division, and in some cases, the justification of evil on so many t occasions. John Fox, if you question that, I encourage you to at least get an excerpt. It's usually about that thick, and because John Fox's Book of Martyrs is actually volumes thick. But if you've never read any of it, I encourage you. I used to read it every year. I don't really have the time for that now, but I used to remind myself by reading Jeff Fox's Book of Martyrs once a year. But in his book, John Fox gave the account of the persecution and execution of many Christians during the time of the Inquisitions. More often than not, these executions came about because of a difference of view that happened in the Catholic Church. And that, of course, was over the issue of communion, the Lord's Supper. When someone didn't fall in line with what the Catholic Church taught on the subject, they found themselves on the wrong side of the authorities, if you will. Thus, if they wouldn't recant their position, and that, you know, that they, they were condemned to death, uh, called heretics, unfortunately, most of the time they would be burnt at the stake if they didn't recant. 
So what the Lord Jesus Christ meant at, as a great blessing to the church and, of course, trickling down to us today, a great blessing to you and me, is something that the church wound up using, at least the organized church, the Catholic church, as, for great evil. And it's really a sad thing when you see it. There is, in the communion, the bread and the wine, a beautiful, beautiful picture of all that the Lord has done. It's powerful, and it's a spiritual blessing uh, that the Lord meant for good, for you. He meant it for good. Many people will sit in churches throughout the world today and partaking of this ritual every Sunday, some churches. Uh, some do it twice a month. Some do it, as we do, once a month. Some churches do it twice a year, some once a year. Some churches, believe it or not, don't celebrate it at all. So today, we're going to take a little bit closer look at just a few of the views, theologically, the most common among Christians and Christian churches, and what the communion is, how it is performed, and what it means for the believer. You need to understand this. You need to have a grip on because so many Christians do not. And we just participate in this ritual, for lack of a better description, and we really have no idea how people view it in different places. The first place we find the ritual, of course, mentioned in the Bible is, is found in the Synoptic Gospels. The Last Supper, as I told you, was in reality the last Passover, the last Seder that Jesus himself celebrated with his disciples, and it was a celebration. You know, it wasn't a somber night, that last one. It was for Jesus. He knew what was going to happen. His disciples really had no idea. They were simply gathering together with their, with their pastor or their rabbi, and they were having a good time, man. They were fellowshipping, and, and the, the wine was flowing, and they were having a good time, as it was every year, every year. It was during the Passover that Jesus took the matzah. Now, we use matzah, and why? Because that's what they use at Passover. We always use it at Passover. It's interesting because that unleavened bread has been baked the same way for 3,000 years. And it's interesting when you look at it, when you see a whole sheet of matzah, because it is striped and it is pierced. So it's a great picture. But Jesus took that bread, that, that piece of matzah, and he blessed it, it says, and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Now, keep this in mind, my friends. This had happened every day, or every year, for almost 2,500 years at that time. In like manner, we're told that he took the cup, and he blessed it. He said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now, of course, this right was given to the church by Jesus Christ, as I said, over 2,000 years ago. The problem with men, and you probably know this, ladies know it, is that when we're given something, especially something spiritual, I, I really believe this, simplistic, you know, it's simplistic in its nature, something that's meaningful and, and, and just beautiful and so useful and, 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 you know, to our walk with the Lord, Men have a way of doing with it. They, they want to they take it and pet it. They want to love on it, hug it, squeeze it, till they finally just ruin it and rip it apart and remove it from any semblance of, that it had in its original meaning. 
It's just the way it always is. Why? Because men are given to religion. Men love religion. We love rules and regulations. Tell me what to do. Yeah, that's what we want to do. And that's what they did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it didn't take the church long before problems began to crop up in this particular area of the communion, the Lord's Passover. Paul actually devoted almost this entire chapter to correct the issues concerning the Lord's Supper. The Corinthian church had begun to see communion as an opportunity for revelry. And I want to remind you as to why. They were Jews. Most of the early church was Jews. And the Lord's Supper was associated with what? Passover. Passover was what? A celebration. Now you can take a celebration over the top. And this is what they began to do. Paul said in verse 17 through 22, uh, you're already there, that the church had actually come together to partake in this ritual, but they were really already divided in so many ways, he said. Paul had heard that there were divisions among them. Factions had cropped up and divided that body that was there in, in Corinth. So that by the time the, all these things had happened, they weren't even really celebrating the Lord's Supper. Not unlike Thanksgiving. As you well know, we're coming up on that blessed holiday, which I look forward to so much. Not just because it's, uh, you get to eat a lot of turkey, but because it's a great day of Thanksgiving. And we get to put the Lord first in it. And it's just a great time. But I've heard too many war stories about families who come together. And they get there and, you know, there's this mindset of, yeah, this is going to be great. And until they sit down to eat and somebody says, who are you voting for? <laughs> and then the problems start. The divisions begin to rise. And then, oh, I remember when I was a kid and you slapped me on the back of the head. And who knows what, and the next thing you know, it's turned into something that it really wasn't meant to be. It's no longer the blessing. This is kind of what was going on at Corneth because of the Passover, of the Lord's Supper. It's important to remember that when the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper, it had become called what we call today the Agape Feast. This is what they did. Today, like I said, we call it the fellowship dinner. Uh, some people call it potlucks because sometimes it is, you're lucky if you get anything. But because much of the early church was Jewish, they still presented it, that supper, this potluck, as a Passover. It was that format. It wasn't counted as a Passover, but it was in that format, if you understand what I'm saying. But Paul said that many people would show up early. You know, they wanted to get there first. And they wouldn't even wait on each other. You know, they would start digging in just as they got there. And they would just jump in and start eating. And some would even, before they ate, would begin to tap into the communion wine, you see. And so some of the people who actually needed to eat, who really were the poor of their congregation, would wind up with nothing. Some of those who had gotten there early had started to drink and had become drunk. Paul rebuked him for this. And he asked him, he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? He's talking not the building. He's talking about the people. 
and shame those who have nothing? He says, I will not praise you in this. You are absolutely wrong in what you're doing. My point is, is that the church really, even from its inception, from its very beginning, had not fully grasped, really, what the Lord had given to the church at that last Passover. They didn't really understand it. They really weren't able to discern it, you see. So Paul began to correct this problem, this lack of discernment. He was correcting it. So that's what Corinthians 11 is actually written about. What was the rightful view of what Jesus had given? That he wanted them to understand that. And you need to understand that. Thus we read in 1 Corinthians, look at verses uh, there in 23, verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was portrayed, betrayed, took bread. Now, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He said that that which I received. You see that in your text? He said that, that what I received of the Lord is that which I delivered unto you. In reality, this should be the mindset of every minister who stands behind a pulpit today. I'm delivering unto you what the Lord has laid upon my heart. Unfortunately, though, too many pastors have given into copying and pasting in the era that we live in. Or preaching from lectionaries, you see. Pre-scripted sermons. And in some cases, even paying for subscriptions. Believe it or not, they actually have such things. We call them sermon houses. And you can pay a subscription. It's like $50 a month or whatever. And yes, they too will write a sermon for you. And give you the illustrations. And even the overheads you can put up. And you have to do nothing but deliver it. Thus, they're simply regurgitating, you see, to the people something that someone else had written. But if you're going to be a true minister of Christ, if you're going to do what God has genuinely called you to do, you should be able to say with Paul, I have received of the Lord, and it's that which I am going to deliver unto you. When you think about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is very important in this particular area, our lives are subjective in him and objective. They're both. Thus, we understand that, the, that God works in me, that he also might work through me. It's pretty simple, really. In that sense, there is this synergistic relationship that we have with God through the Holy Spirit. I must partake of him before I can impart unto you. And thus Paul said, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered. In ministry, this is always the case. This is always the way it should be. You receive and then you deliver what God has told you. I challenged a young man one time, a young minister. I hadn't known him very long, but I had been around there long enough to listen to him preach. And I could tell that it was scripted. It wasn't anything that had come from his own heart. And I challenged him to, to lay down that lectionary, put it away, and simply begin to pray and to ask the Lord to give you something, give you the insight that you might pass something on to the people who sit and listen to you. And I'll never forget his response. He said, what could I possibly add to what has already been taught over the last 2,000 years? And I remember telling him, I said, you know, with that attitude, son, you'll never know. 
You'll never know. But see, if you would just surrender to the Holy Spirit, maybe the Lord would give you an insight that maybe nobody else has ever had. Not something extra biblical, but within the text. Maybe a new sight, a new insight into Christ. You know. But you're never going to know because you're relying on something that somebody else had said. There in verse 24 of our text, he says, and when he had given thanks, talking about the Lord, he breaked it. He broke the bread and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So during the Passover, at the beginning of the supper, the leader of the Passover, of course, which was Jesus at this time, you know, he, he, he would take from the matzah. Now, during the Passover, some of you have been at Passover with me. Uh, you know, every Passover is the same way. We have this pouch. It has three envelopes in it. And it's a pockets, if you will. And we put three whole pieces of matzah into the, and we fold it over, and we set it at the head of the table. And of course, when the leader of the Passover begins, when we get to that part of the Passover, because it's a full-blown dinner, those of you who have been there with me, you know, the leader will take out the center matzah, that middle piece, and then he breaks it. This was the bread that Jesus was breaking. You know, he, you take it out, you break it, and then you take the other half, you put it in another napkin, you wrap that up. This becomes what we call the afikoman. And the afikoman is sent away, you hide that. And then later on, the children are encouraged to run around and kind of seek for it. And when they find it, uh, you got to give them a reward. You know. But it was that piece of bread that Jesus told his disciples to take and eat. He broke that. Because it doesn't take much of a theologian to see the semblance, you know, that that piece of bread that represented his body was wrapped up and put away and hid. And then it is brought back out into the open. You know, it is the resurrection of Christ is even found in the Passover. It gives me goosebumps even thinking about it because I love it. Every time we get to have Passover, I get to teach this. And people are always amazed because they didn't realize it, you see. But this was the piece of bread. It says when he took the bread and he blessed it, he broke it. He said, take this, eat this as my body. That's the piece that he was talking about. This is the piece that he told them to eat. And it's the same piece that we pass around even to this day at the, at the, at the Last Supper. Or not the Last Supper, but at the Passover. So this was the one that Jesus was talking about. Now, the Catholic Church has interpreted this to be the actual body of Jesus Christ. They claim that that little wafer that they use, the Eucharist is what they call it. In theological terms, it's uh, this process by which it becomes the actual body of, of Christ is called transubstantiation. It's a big word. Basically what it means is it's transformed into the actual body, blood of Christ. What the Roman Catholic Church teaches its people is that the bread is actually, and, and the wine, Actually, by some mysterious way, they can't explain what it is, but by some mysterious way that's beyond human comprehension is transformed into the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But the physical traits, including all the chemical compounds and everything physically that makes up the bread and the wine, remain the same. So it's a, a, a mystery, they tell you. Transubstantiation is what they call it. But there are other views, no doubt. One theological view, other than that, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church, is what they believe 
is known as definitive change. Very interesting. You know, though they don't like the word transubstantiation, they actually agree with the conclusion of that particular doctrine from the Catholic Church. They agree with what it says, which is the real presence, the actual body, blood, and the divinity of Christ is present in the Eucharist. They believe that with their whole heart. Then there is the consubstantiation. Did you even know so far that there was all these things? No, I knew you didn't. But I want you to, you need to know this. So there's this other doctrine called transubstantiation. This is the view that is held by who was by the, called the Lollards. I know you probably don't know who they were, but they were really just a Reformation group that was led by John Wycliffe during the Reformation. Now their view was that the bread retains its substance, you see. And Christ, you know, his, his glorified body comes down into it. The bread is then consecrated and is found together with the natural substance of the bread, but without quantity. But the whole is complete in every part of the sacramental bread. Some Anglicans actually hold this position also. Then there is the sacramental union theory. Theology also, which, which explains, is this is the position that many Lutherans hold. They believe that the words of Christ, when Jesus said, this is my body which is broken, the very fact that Jesus spoke, those words over the bread actually cause it once and for all to become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so those elements are united with the actual body of Christ and so they become the actual blood, the actual body and it stays that way forever regardless if you take part of it whether you're a believer or not. That's their view. Then there is the objective reality, silence, about technicalities theology. This is interesting, because this is the view held by Anglo-Catholics, some Anglicans, and the Methodist Church. This is what they believe. Now, in their view of communion, is, it, they call it a holy mystery. They, call, they, they agree with that in the sacrament, the bread, the wine, are really and truly changed into the body and blood of Christ. Though, throughout their history, they have never... Or at times they have used the term substance, but they really, uh, to try to explain how that change happens, but most of the time they avoid that language because it sounds too Catholic. But they absolutely believe that. Now, in Reformed theology, their belief on the Lord's Supper is known as pneumatic presence, which is defined as the real spiritual presence uh, of the pneumatic presence of Christ, or the spiritual presence of Christ. They hold that not only the Spirit of Christ, but also the true body, blood of Jesus Christ are received by the sovereign, mysterious, and miraculous power of the Holy Ghost, but only by believers. Thus, in a Reformed church, only believers can partake of the, of the communion. Now, within Reformed churches, the pneumatic presence theology is known as mystical presence. You know, why? Because it's a mystery. They don't know how it happens. It's just kind of mysterious, you see. Then it brings us to what is known as memorialism. Memorialism theology, when it comes to the, to the bread and wine, says that it is symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. It, in partaking these elements, the believers are commemorating, if you will, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is not actually present in the sacrament, except in the minds and in the hearts of the communicants. This view is also known as Zwinglianism. What's that? 
Well, Zwingli was a reformer uh, in the Switzerland uh, during the Reformation period. He was just a man, but he was the one who began to teach this, and a lot of the reformers adopted it. Uh, they took it up at the council uh, and tried to have it influence the whole of the Reformation, but Martin Luther wasn't having no part of it. So every time they mentioned it, Martin Luther would start slamming his fist on the desk. This is my body. This is my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. Martin Luther could not let go of his Catholic roots when it came to the communion. It was one of the few things that, that he did that he should have let go of, but he didn't. But that's called the memorialism. Now this brings us to the last view, which is called suspension. Suspension theology, also known as, as uh, antinomianism. Uh, not to be confused with antinomianism, but this, this basically means no supper, no meal. And it's the view that contends that Jesus never intended that the last Passover was to be perpetuated as a religious rite. This view, of the, this is what the Quakers believe, if you've ever heard of Quakers. Salvation Army, you certainly have heard of them. They also hold to this view. And, and many hyper-dispensationalists, if you understand it, they, they therefore do not serve communion. They don't have it. It's no such thing. They don't believe it was meant to be. And of course, the problem with that view uh, is that the scriptures, as we're reading today, would indicate that the communion was perpetuated because Paul was dealing with the corrections of it here in the text, trying to straighten out the way that they thought about it. Now, what is the correct view? What should we believe? I think you need to make note of the fact that Jesus said, when he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, he was still in his body. You see. So when he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, there was no mysterious thing happening that was creating or making that bread change into his body. Why? He was still in his body, you see. This is the problem when Gentiles get a hold of a Jewish situation because they didn't understand it. So they didn't even understand the Passover, so they began to change it. But Jesus was standing. He was there in his own body when he said this. So there was nothing miraculous happening other than he was giving them something that would memorialize what was going on. So it was a spiritualization, if you will. He was actually showing the Jews at the Passover the foreshadowing through the Afikomen that had been celebrated for millennia. This, he was explaining it to them. This is what you guys do this every year, basically is what he was saying, but here's what it means. You know, Jesus often said in the, in the gospel, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth, but I say unto you. And he wasn't changing it, he was simply explaining it. And this is what he was doing here. Thus the bread has been a representation of the body of Christ, but it has never been the exact substance, or had it ever been changed by some miracle or, or you know, into the actual body of Christ. Of course, this would be true even with the cup of wine. But to me, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter. The, the Passover is a poignant reminder to me of the body of Christ, which was broken for me, and the blood of Christ, which has been shed for my sins. I partake of these in remembrance of him. I want to be reminded of that. But for those who would argue 
that Jesus' words spoken over the bread and wine, saying that they were his body and blood, somehow mysteriously caused it to be so, I would remind you that Jesus also said, I am the door. But it didn't make him a door. He said, I am the true vine. But it didn't make him a vine. Jesus often pointed to heavenly truths by using spiritual pictures. Look at verse 25 and 26. He says, after the same manner, he also took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, we did spend quite a bit of time discussing how the body of Christ is has allowed itself to become so divided over the scriptures when, when it seems to be something that is clearly stated in, in the common you know, word of God and something that we all hold in common. There really is no different. It's no different when you think about how frequency you know, it is. I mean, how often should we do it? Jesus said, as often as ye do this. So not only are they divided on how communion is done, but they're divided on even how often you should do it. As I said, some do it every month, some do it every week, some do it, and it, it really, what's the average? Well, it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you, not in my humble opinion. You know, one view in the early church is that they did it once a week, you know, of their, because of their agape feast, which they held on a weekly basis. Some Messianic Jews would argue that when Jesus said, as often as you do this, it was understood by the disciples that as often as they did it was once a year. Why? Because it was Passover. He gave it to him at Passover. Obviously, like I said, it would have been clear to the disciples what he was talking about. But the fact is, it really doesn't matter. Not how often, how often you do it. Really, it's no big deal. You know, if you want to take it at home, I encourage people to do it. Take communion at home. If you want to take it every day before a meal, do it. I would encourage you to do it. It's very powerful. It's very powerful spiritual thing that God has given us. Verse 27, he says, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. What Paul was talking about here was that the Corinthians were coming together, as we read, and they were getting drunk at these feasts. You know, they were just coming in and as they pleased, you know, at any time, some of them were, you know, diving into the meal before anybody else got there, and some of them were getting intoxicated. Then they would go, and they would, you know, take part of the Lord's Supper. It's kind of like Eli's sons, if you remember that story in the Old Testament. These boys were trying to operate as priests, and yet, what did they do? They went and got drunk, and the Bible says they went in and began to offer strange fire before the Lord. It didn't really work out too well for those two. I'll challenge you to go read that story. And this is kind of what Paul's saying. Now, many people who were raised in churches where this, where the interpretation of this is that you have to be worthy to partake of the communion, you know, the elements in communion. There's many people who teach this. You know, that they, if you're not worthy, you can't partake of the body and the blood of Christ. Or if you do take of it unworthily, that you're eating and drinking damnation uh, into yourself. You know, I've seen people pass, pass up on taking the cup 
because they were afraid to drink because they felt unworthy. But our worthiness, and I want you to get this, our worthiness is not predicated upon our goodness. It's not predicated upon our works or our efforts. It's predicated upon Christ. Because we are joint heirs with Christ, we are encouraged to come boldly, he said, unto the throne of grace that we might receive help in time of need. How much more then should we partake of the communion? By faith. Because Christ is the one who has paid the price for everything that we've done. What Paul was describing here was he was referring to was the manner in which they were eating and drinking. It was the manner that they were doing it. Paul was rebuking them for how they were taking it. To get drunk into those type of revelings and stuff and then to come in and take part of the Lord's Supper was absolutely ridiculous. And it was damning. Look at verse 27. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of the bread and drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh of the cup unworthily, and eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If you're taking notes, you need to underline that. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many of you die. So it's interesting that Paul said, for this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and many of you die. What did he mean by that? One interpretation, of course, is that, you know, and one I personally, I believe, I, I, I hold to this interpretation, is that the partaking of the Lord's body without discerning the Lord's body, many people wind up sick. Some people wind up sick and, and, and some people wind up even dying. It is important, and I believe, that, that through, though we understand that, you know, the communion itself, that is the physical bread and the, and the wine are merely symbols of what Christ has done. We must never forget that they point to a virtual truth. The same as the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you know, pointed to Christ. Even though they could not take away sin, they certainly covered, we're taught that in the, in the scriptures. And the Old Testament saints who not only sacrificed but believed on the Messiah that was to come, the Bible says that they are saved by the same grace that we today as Christians enjoy. They were saved by the same way, but yet it pointed, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Thus, in like manner, in the book of Isaiah, there's a very powerful passage that says, he, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. In, in the Hebrew there, the word is actually sicknesses. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So the implication is that through the suffering of Christ, we were healed. Paul said those who eat of the body and the blood of Christ, not discerning the Lord's body, do not understand what Christ did for them. They do take and, and receive the healing that was provided through the suffering of Christ. Thus Paul said, for this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and some of you even die. The implication, I think, is that being, 
some of them could have been healed had they only appropriated what Jesus had done. But they did not discern the Lord's body when they partook of it. I admit, I do believe that there is validity on this position. I think there's a lot of validity to it. You know, and I also realize that there are people who object to it, and that's okay. But when you take into consideration all the scriptural references, which I could not do this morning because you're not going to sit here for three hours and listen to me preach, even though I could, I'd love to do it. (laughs) You find that there's a lot of validity for that position. I personally do believe it. While at the same time, I do realize that all things, including healing, are by the will of God. They're by God's choice and His will. I understand that. I do think that it is possible, though, that some people who could be healed are sometimes not because they simply fail to appropriate what Christ has already done. I have to give, I'll give you my own testimony. When I was going through my own problems and the doctors had told me that, you know, you're a walking time bomb. You could drop dead at any moment. I was taking communion as often as I could. And I simply was claiming the healing of the Lord. Now, I realized and I also gave myself over to the sovereignty of God. And I said, Lord, if if you're calling me home, I'm going. I'm good with that. But I do realize that it was by your stripes I am healed. You know, I can't imagine why God had called me at that moment to do something and then would just take me out of the picture. I I was having a little hard time with that. And as you well know, everything changed. But that's not to say that the, you know, the Lord uh, couldn't have done it some other way. So this morning, as we partake of this great ritual that Christ has given to us, if you need healing, I encourage you to seek the Lord and, and to be reminded that it is his stripes by which we are healed of our sins, yes. Of our iniquities, of course. But it very well could be of our physical illness also. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for your body and your blood which was broken for us, Lord Father, which has cleansed us completely, taking our sins out of the way and has delivered unto us, Lord Father, the new covenant by which you are the one who has fulfilled all things and it is no longer predicated upon anything that we do but all because of you. Lord, this morning we are so thankful for that. We rejoice in it. We glorify you in it. And Lord, we ask this morning that as we partake of your communion, of your body and your your blood, Lord Father, that we would be renewed in our spirit and, and even in our physicalness, Lord. I pray for those who have physical ailments, Lord. That as they would partake, that they would be reminded, Lord, of all that you have done for us. We know that None of us sitting here, Lord Father, are worthy to do anything for you. But you are the one who is worthy. And because we are yours, Lord Father, we are then worthy vicariously because of you. We thank you so much for all that you are doing. 
And before we close the prayer, while everybody is still praying, I just want to ask for hands. I want to pray for you this morning before we go to prayer. If you've been dealing with anything, it doesn't matter what it is. We just want to lift you up in prayer. Do we have, I see that hand. Anybody else? I see those. I see those. We've got hands going up all over the... So let's, let's go to prayer for that. Lord, Father, you know the hearts of your people. You know all that, that they are suffering and going through, Lord, Father. I pray for them even now that as we take this communion, as I said before, Lord, Father, that we would be reminded of all that you have done. And Lord, Father, that not only you would touch us in a, in a physical way, but spiritually, Lord, Father, renewing our spirit in you. And our strength would be renewed, Lord, Father, and, and once again, those who are suffering physically, Lord, Father, might recover from their illness. We love you. We thank you. And we lift up these and ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen. Amen. If the elders would certainly pass the elements.